TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Inside the Champion's Mind featuring Dr. Lawrence Tam and Marcus Pierce. Welcome to Inside the Champions Mind, a show dedicated to helping you overcome mediocrity in the pursuit of being world-class in anything that you do. I'm Lawrence Tam, co-founder of The Wellness Couch, and as always, my champion mindset co-host, Marcus Pierce. Marcus, we are here, the first time ever, recording a podcast live, face-to-face, yeah, you not on Skype. I know. It's weird, isn't it? This is bizarre, but it's so exciting because we're at The Wellness Breakthrough, and um, we've got a wonderful group of people here, but this is the first time ever that we have been face-to-face with Kim Morrison's wonderful husband. We've been trying to get this guy here. Um, but you never find him. Yeah, we can never find him. I was even do- in Dubai at the same time with him, and we try to connect, but, you know, he's a busy man. Where in the world is Danny Morrison? It gives me great pleasure. As someone, I'd love LT to introduce you, but I grew up with cricket in my blood, and uh, I'd really love to introduce to every single one of you listening today 48 Tests with New Zealand, beautiful husband to Kim Morrison. You've got a great story to tell. Danny Morrison, thanks so much for joining us on Inside the Champion's Mind. Gentlemen, it is an absolute pleasure to be here. Oh, it's fantastic. I just want to clear this up. For anybody who's not a cricketer, I've just heard, like, Danny, I just met you yesterday. I heard a lot about you, obviously, through Kim, but... uh yeah, put it in perspective. I know nothing about cricket. So I, I just LT doesn't know how many balls are in an over. Yeah, um, what's you know, a ball? What's, what's yeah, a ball? <laughs> you know, what a four is? What a six is? What's a maiden? What's a wide? Yeah. So we'll leave the cricketing questions to me. But there's a lot well, of like yeah. Danny is is one people have been telling me is that you're like considered the top you know two or three cricketer. Danny is in a very elite club. Right? So that's what I just want to put it in context for the listeners so that yeah. they understand who who, who we're talking. But about. But to put this into perspective. Danny is one of only two New Zealanders to take a hat-trick in one-day cricket. And there's probably, even though we have what's called 20-20 cricket these days, which is 20 overs per game, 120 balls to score as many runs as you can. Um, So there's more pressure in the short version of the game, and 50-over games was when Danny was playing. And that was, uh, to score a hat-trick in any form of the game is a big Mm. effort, but... um, to score a hat-trick in a one-day game, one of only two uh, Kiwis, I think it's phenomenal. So I think I'd probably like to ask you, just if we can get started on that before we get into all the other family stuff and everything else, Danny. Um, well, actually, have we actually officially said welcome to the program? Yeah, no, good yeah. to see you. You know, I was under a rock in Dubai when I missed you. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hiding in. Yeah, hiding, hiding away from the sun. sun. That's what yeah. we're trying to do. But yeah, you're in an elite club, Danny, and this is why LT and I were so excited to ask you about this, because... To be one of only two people from your country to take a hat-trick just goes to show how difficult it is. And I think the question I said to LT is, you take, you bowl one ball, you take a wicket. You bowl the second ball, you take a wicket. And every time a bowler bowls, I would generally say they're bowling to take a wicket. But from a life perspective, I think it's a great metaphor to be on a hat-trick when there's a weight of expectation. With every other ball that you bowl in a game of cricket, there's a hope, but there's not an expectation. And then when it's a hat-trick... It's not just a hope. It's almost, there's a level of expectation there that it's almost meant to be, so to speak. And what I'd love to know is, what goes through someone's mind, someone's head, when you've got a whole country behind you, everyone's really, really barracking for you. Do you find in that moment, if you can remember those days, did you put uh, an element of pressure on yourself that you've never done before? Or did you just go back, repeat the process, um, do your rituals, and um, obviously take that third wicket? Well, gentlemen, um, I tell you what, it was, it was weird because 
hat-trick, we know, and, and for Daryl Lawrence the same too, <laughs> is that you get six balls and that's one over, so you get six consecutive balls and an over, then it swaps ends and the guy, the other pitcher, if you like, like mm. baseball terms, yeah. the bowler is at the other end. So there's two of you operating from either end. And so what had happened is the wickets that I got back to back were balls five and five six. Six, ah, oh, so you had time to think about it. Well, it's funny going on about that and, and of course all this stuff when you talk about sport and, and even people's walks of life and what you're trying to get out of even like in the wellness and coming to a workshop, trying to get yourself into a good mindset to then be, have a positive outlook on anything you do. So when I was thinking about that, you get in the zone and for one of the sporting cliches, you, you are, you, you're hyped, big crowd and noise, but taking those two wickets and then went back to my mark there and then the other guy was doing his thing at the other end bowling, teammate, and then... Um, Lo and behold, it didn't strike me until I'd handed over my hat and sunglasses and stuff for the, the umpire there. And um, it wasn't until there was a buzz because I'd handed it over. And all of a sudden, because, you know, the field's changing, I'm yeah. coming and handing over the hat and glasses, and then, and then it dawns on you, bang. And then the captain stopped and got, oh, wow, and was a bit cheeky and put an extra couple of slip fielders in. I was going to say, it would have been an aggressive field to make it as yeah, possible, entirely possible to take that wicket. So you're saying in between the over that you weren't actually running over in your no, head? No, of, the, of, the, of say, look, I'm on a hat trick. Yeah. Because I think if you people listening who know cricket, then you're on a, you, you know, there's consecutive deliveries. And so you're on a hat trick. So that, I mean, that happens a lot. You know, you're on a hat trick, but the amount of times it actually comes off, yeah. it's obviously not that great. So here is, there's an expectation, and the buzz of the crowd, all of a sudden, um, and so then you went back and you think, wow, bang, switch on, and yeah, you're looking to bowl a similar delivery, go through that whole process, this is what I want to do, um, I think even Lawrence, you know, used today in the wellness um, workshop here, you don't think consciously think of what you're trying to bowl, mechanically, it just flows, you go, you know what you're trying to do, you're coming up with this ultimate delivery, this ultimate pitch, mm. and it, you know, and it came off, so... Yeah, an absolute blast because in terms of a hat trick, they were all bold. It wasn't like one got caught behind by the, the wicket keeper at the backstop, mm. and another one wasn't and smashed out and caught on the fence there. Yeah. And then the next one was LBW or something. Yeah. Right? So those modes of dismissal were all bold, which yeah. was quite cool yeah. um, looking back on it. Well, I mean, I'd love to know something because, I mean, as a professional athlete, you know, you got a whole country behind you or in a stadium even. You got so, and this is at any point in your career, you got so much noise and so much pressure, I would imagine, mm. um, you know, from the media, from the country, because there's so much hype, especially when it comes to a big game. And we, you know, most of us who are listeners are most likely fans. So we're, we're part of that pressure. How, as an, how do an athlete, because, you know, we think of athletes, like a, and we put them on a pedestal, we think mm. they're so, you know, some superhuman being, but at the end of the day, they're just human, just like us. They just, you know, obviously dedicate their whole life for this. How do you turn off that pressure or noise, or do you actually leverage it in some way? How do you? How did you handle it? Yeah, very good. Um, I think you do leverage it. Um, it's how well you leverage it. I mm -hmm. think those that cope with it better than others. Mm -hmm. And you used to hear a lot of guys talk about, and particularly listening to some batting greats. I know Barry Richards, um, who I've commentated with in recent years, um, and you see them all writing about it. It's, discussed that when they were batting, they switched off. So they would go for a little walk out to square leg or just turn around the batting crease and move away. If they played and missed it in delivery, yeah. um, they would switch off because that ball's gone, it's history, you can't get it back, you've got to 
think of the next ball. It's always just about the next ball. And same for bowling. You've just been smashed before, um, and the previous ball before that you got smashed before. You can't worry about it. Um, you can't worry about it. And you just got to get on. So I think for me in that mindset was that, um, and for me it was a bit different. Some different characters handle it differently. I was a bit of a showman. I liked hamming it up with the crowd. Um, in Australia, particularly here being a Kiwi, um, I'd blow kisses to the crowd and That's stuff and revving you because you didn't want them throwing oranges or hard missiles, obviously, yeah. to the MCG. Um, so you got them on site. We had fun with them. So it was a bit of byplay. But at the same time, you switched on and knew what you were doing in focus. Yeah. But there was a point too, Lawrence, and for, for listeners' understanding, uh, being a quick bowler with a longer run-up, you had more time to breathe in and relax. Some would say you had more time to get more nervous about the next one, for sure. But I think any athlete will tell you they're trying to come up with a solution of what's gone on previously, whether the batsman's been in control and smashing it around, scoring runs. You as a bowler has to come back and refocus and then go back to what you know and what you've learnt and what you've trained for for hours and on end and whatever and call on it. That it has to be um, second nature. It has to be like breathing, really. Mm. To that, that's as basic as I can get it. Is it has to be like breathing. Yeah. As simple yeah. as that because then it flows for you and you and then you get in the, one of that, that cliche better term. You get in the zone and you just float in and you feel smooth and the rhythm's all there and it's happening. Do you find that when you reflect on this, it's easy, it, it seems very easy for you to put all of this into words. Back then, when you were in your early to mid-twenties, would you have explained it the same way, or do you feel that it was more innate, that it just came to you naturally? And if we asked you the same question you know, 20 years ago, you probably wouldn't have explained it that way. Would it have been more like, well, I just, I just do what I do? Or uh, I'm interested in terms of the focus back then, because yes. it seems that you put it so eloquently but I wonder, was it put to you like that when you're actually playing? And I think as we get older, and, and God, I don't have to tell you gurus, that you know you want to be around and more intelligent people, or you we're, we're like sponges, you know, you're learning all the time off different people and yeah. different walks of life. And I think for me, I was like that when I was young because um, I was playing alongside one of the, the all-time greats with Richard Hadley, yeah. and he had different ways of going about things, and he wrote things, and it was stuck on the top of his cricket case, and you could see... He was very about. meticulous, wasn't he? And was renowned for that. Yeah. Very organised, and um, and great strategy, and as you say, meticulous, because he planned lots of stuff out. Yeah. Whereas the rest of it, as much as that was innate, you learned that, yeah. and so I saw that and watched a lot, and there was, I remember a great column here, actually, in the Melbourne Age, when that tour was on here in 87, um, the headline was The Sorcerer and His Apprentice. Yeah, right. And so it was great. And I remember um, Patrick Smithers, Smithers, Smithers? Patrick Smith. Yeah, yeah. Smith, Patrick Smith doing the interview. Um, and it was great because in terms of putting it, how did I put it back then? You're right, it wouldn't have been quite so eloquent. Um, I mean, it was very simple because you try to keep it simple. It was the whole kiss theory, keep it short and simple, or yeah. keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. And it was, but there was a mantra, you see. And I got that from... Hadley's book in 1982 when I was 16 at secondary school and the mantra that I still use today and I used last week at a coaching clinic funnily enough, uh, very recently is that for a quick bowler, in fact any bowler, but particularly in dealing with the pace bowlers was that it was very simple and very succinct and it was that the first word that you used and you were breathing in through your mouth and your nose and relaxed at the top of your mark was focus and switch on mechanism so you're very focused, so clearing your head as much as you could, focus 
I need to look at the base of off stump. That's where my target is. I'm looking at the batsman's base of off stump, whether he's left-handed or right-handed, I can see the base of off stump. That's my channel I want to be in. I need rhythm, I need to be smooth, I need to get to the wicket, I need to run and I need to load up. So rhythm is a key. So that was the third part of the mantra. Now, I need to use my front frame. So as a pitcher, a bowler, I need to use my front part of my bowling frame to in order to help my bowling part come over. Mm-hmm. Now, if I use my front frame well, it will enable me to have a follow through. So letting the ball go and unraveling. So that was it. Focus for switching on. Base of off stump is my target. Rhythm is such a focus and key to be smooth. I need to use my front frame, and if I use my front frame, I'll follow through. So those five little bullet points kept you going and ticking mm. whilst there was 40, 50, 60,000 people in the wow. MCG. And all of that is in a span of a few seconds too. So you, you've just got pumped through square leg for four, you bowled a bad ball in, then you bowled a little bit too, and overcompensated and got square cut for four. It's gone. Can't get it back, baby. Um, those two balls have gone, gone for eight. And what do you do? You keep it simple, and the crowd's yelling, banging for your blood, giving you heaps, ridiculing, and whatever. And you focus uh, base of off stump. I want good rhythm. I want to use my front frame and follow through. And I'm just going to buy a nice little outswing here. I want to be around about off stump. And, mm. and, and you're just keeping it as simple and as focused and in the groove as much as possible. Yeah, there's a great movie uh, with Kevin Costner. It was about baseball context and. Kind of the, the movie kind of escapes me at the moment. Field of Dreams? No, 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 no. It's not Field of Dreams. It was something to do. With, he was pitching a perfect game oh. at the time, and he one of those things he did was clear the mechanism, and it was a really cool movie uh, effect because it was like all these crowds yelling and da da, and he'd go clear the mechanism, and all of a sudden the crowd was silence, and then he just in just the pitcher, the batter, and him. It was really cool like effects, and and that's what he used to get into. Every time he pitches, he was just like. Clears that mechanism and just allows them that everybody. It's only me and and the, and the catcher and, and, and the batter you have to face. I'd love to, to know a little bit about this though, because um, one of the key things is that I see in all sport, you know, whether it be baseball, hockey, or any sport, there's a lot of talent. You know, there's a lot of um, prospects. You know, when they're and they're usually prospects. Potential, a lot of potential. Yeah, a lot of potential around the yeah. teenage years. You know, seventeen, eighteen, and I'm sure your scouts are trying to, you know, obviously scouting at a lot younger age, and they're looking for skills, and um, but not. You know, majority of them never really make a career. They might get drafted, they might you know get picked, and they might play for a little while, but they never have the longevity, the legacy that they you know wished for. Um, you know, you had a long career. I would just love to know, you know, what is because you just mentioned something there, like you said, you read a book when you were sixteen. So obviously, you know, you were you know, obviously you were a great player at that time. You know, in high school, right? But you you were studying already. You were preparing yourself at that age. You know what I mean? What what do you think is the Big thing, a couple of key points that makes someone um, have a longevity career. Because skills is one thing, yes. but have the discipline and the commitment. I'm sure you would have had players that you played with that had greater discipline and greater commitment, but probably didn't have as, as strengths and skills as someone another player. Or the other way is they had huge potential, huge skills and physical attributes, yeah. whereas I didn't, you see. And so, as my mother taught me, and I was very uh, fortunate. Solo mother upbringing, but some very good male role models around in my teens um, at Takapuna Grammar School. And so when I look at, back on that, um, those things that my mother said, look, this is what you've been given. And like, you know, as we laugh about it, and I do, and I, I put my mind on my podcast, I used to use it a lot of after dinner speaking engagements. It's like, you know, obviously. I was one of the last in line when they were handing out the legs, or as I tell the audience, look, instead of being circumcised, I've had my legs cut off. Yeah. So, you know, 
I'm not tall. Clear for a fast bowler, you want to be over six foot. Clear, yeah. you nice to be six foot five and you're beautifully coordinated. Yeah. But being somewhat of a hobbit, um, <laughs> wanted to run fast, which is like, you know, even I used this in my other stories. I used to talk, and true anecdote, um, Morrison was my PE teacher, my physical education instructor, Ralph Lucas. Morrison, I think you better wake up and smell the coffee. Look at you, you short ass runt. How on <laughs> earth are you going to run in a ball fast looking like you do? Yeah. So he told me that when I was like 14. Mm. And yet it wasn't something that, you know, crushed me or anything. It was a laugh. And, and luckily, I don't, personality-wise, whatever, but it spurred me a bit. And then seeing another guy to do that. But getting back to your point was that there were so many more talented people. And yet what drove me, I think, is the classic thing that I don't have to tell you or even listeners, regular listeners, is that it is so much about attitude. And for me, that's what got me through is my attitude and my self-belief and not being uh, over the top with it or full of ego or overconfident. I, I just had this desire and attitude that I really wanted to achieve this. I wanted to do this at a certain time. Um, you know, even crazy enough at times at high school, set goals around 21 because, you know, you're some of your heroes you'd read about a lot, researched, you know, they made it. Yeah. Because quick bowlers tend to make it earlier sometimes than mm. bats yeah. and stuff. So anyway, long story short, um, the way that that uh, those events turned around, they drove me. And um, you know, just having good mentors saying, "Look, Danny, make the most of this because it doesn't last forever. And if you're lucky enough to do it in your twenties, say twenty to thirty, then be grateful because you know you've got to make the most of what you've got physically, yeah. and then tune that mentally. And I think in terms of that mental toughness. Um, having to fight against, um, you know, for me, certainly not this, the status quo of the architectural-looking yeah. physical type of bowler. Um, it just drove me on to train harder. Um, and I think the distinction here is that you, you know, you had all those people who say those things, but mm. you took that story and created a, an empowering story mm. rather yeah. than a disempowering story. And that's yeah. a key thing, right, for yeah. listeners to understand mm. is that, you know, he could have, you know, at 14 when the when the PE teacher yeah. told you that, you know, you're a short run, you yeah. could have go, oh, I'm never going to make it. Yeah. And then just yeah. given up. Like, yeah. you, that was that could have been easy. And that comes to that story. Oh, I was that's tall a 14-year-old kid, yeah. right? That's yeah. a 14-year-old yeah. kid yeah. who can make those decisions like that all the time, yeah. but yet you chose something different, you know? So that's a... a, a and, and just on that, on that sorry digressing it but again the other thing when you get teenagers is oh, that you know there's the obvious thing you know the opposite sex or yeah. they go to uni and they finish secondary school high school at 17 and then so many other options in their life what are they going to do they going to do tertiary education or they go to a job or an apprenticeship whatever it is um, there's those decisions that are made and you've got to make some serious post yeah. secondary school things so for a lot of guys who have immense talent um, and, and all rounders, whether it's a winter coat or say Aussie rules or rugby league or rugby union and cricket mix or tennis versus rugby and some of those guys are going to make those decisions. So um, for me, I was grateful. I sort of in a way set out bang at 16, really at 16 I really knew what I wanted to do. So how much did you attach yourself then to a mentor? Like I'm sure you probably had mentors before Hadley, mm. but this for me is probably the clincher. For anyone listening that wants to really you know, create some form of greatness in their life, whether it's as a mum or whether it's as um, a professional, whether it's a, a lawyer or an accountant or whatever it is. It seems to me that every single person that's achieved success in any field of life has done so with the help of a mentor. For and sure. it, 
how did you attach yourself to Richard Hadley? Because did it come down to attitude? Did you make it your sole purpose that if you were going to be a great uh, fast bowler that you were going to learn from one of the greats? How did that come about? Because I'm sure you'd probably say that was one of the biggest, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, uh, I suppose, leg ups to really get you to be able to perform to your best. Um, it's a bit like if you look in other fields that if you're doing like a workshop like this, um, that may be specific to whether it's accountants, lawyers, whatever walk of life, that they either have speakers that come in that live in the region, if you're fortunate enough, that can stay and be in that city for you, right? So I was very fortunate and blessed that the great Dennis Lilly, Australian, yeah. probably arguably the greatest fast bowler of all time, to what he went through and his whole disciplines and what he created and what he achieved. He came to New Zealand in 1985, so I was 19, and he was sponsored by, I think it was one of the petrol companies, oil companies, and New Zealand Cricket, and he came for five years, from 85 to 89. But particularly for me, and I broke down in an injury, a really bad back injury, muscular, not skeletal size, but muscular, and that was in 84, 85. He turned up in late 85, and then... He said to me, oh, I don't want you to turn in another batter for God's sake, enough of those poncy batters, <laughs> and because I was getting through rehab and injury. Um, so it was lovely to see him. And here I was meeting my idol, yeah. having wagged school and got suspended for in year 11 of high school and the first 11, going to see the great Dennis Lilly up yeah. against Richard Hadley in 1982. So this is only three years later, to see him and chat with him yeah. at this academy set up come contract he had with New Zealand Cricket. So there was that part of the mentor. But, you know, I've listened to other guys, Lawrence and Marcus, about people that have given them a leg up, and it's tended to be as teenagers, clearly, formative years, and finding out where you're going. I was very fortunate to have a deputy principal in Murray Deacon, um, and he was a cricket and rugby guy, but he was just a very good disciplinarian and, and drove guys, and he could see that little, as he's put it too, um, and text as well um, that sparkle in my eye and that little bit of extra spunk to want to do it and really give of myself and have that attitude you could see that X factor um, but certainly you're right a mentor at a young age recognising that um, whether you're searching out I'm just reading Djokovic's book that one of the things in terms of the gluten free thing suited yes, to win yeah. so um, I'm looking at that and um, the, the woman who got him involved when he was a six year old came down and watched that yes and, and, who actually went to his parents and said, your son is going to be a star, yeah, and he that. wanted to fulfil that. So you see that, and it's well documented, mm. whatever sporting code it is, and then for whatever business code, some guys in business schools have had mentors that have helped them from that either early teens, late teens, or whatever it is, mm. before they actually develop into an adult. Yeah. This is almost like it's not just that you you just search for a mentor. It's almost like you actually have to display some sort of Mm. talent or something, not talent per se, but a discipline of some sort. Mm. Yeah, a drive of some sort for the mentor to even want to take you. The mentor's not going to take you just because, oh, you asked. The mentor's got to see some potential in you. Sure. And that potential's got to be built up and developed. And I think if, you know, if that, if that point is right. Um, there was a point I was listening to a podcast once, and they were talking about Andre Agassi. And they were talking about it in his book, and I can't remember the exact quote he said. He said, you know, when he won, when he started winning Wimbledon or whatever he won, um, he said that he realized um, really quickly that a win was not as fulfilling as a loss in a sense because the win was temporary, but a loss ate him up or hurt more and that drove him 
you know, what do you feel about that? Do you feel that that's true? And how do you, and if, you know, how do you overcome a loss per se? Because in, 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 in a world stage mm-hmm. and in your country, you're representing your country, you know, all eyes are on you. I'm sure, you know, how do you handle that pressure afterwards? Because during the game, it's, it's, you know, done, it's fun. I mean, we just witnessed, I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl, but the Super Bowl, I mean, it was one split second, one last play, last throw. Yeah. Last throw. <laughs> They were going to win the game, boom, changed hands. And all of a sudden now, this coach, this whole team has got to live with it yes. for another year or so. And that pain, that drive, how do you overcome, you know, because you have to, mm. how do you overcome that loss? And, um, look, I think differently, say like you took a Super Bowl or, or a World Cup, maybe a bit different. But look, Lawrence, we, we lost a lot, you know, and, and make no bones about it when I played, we didn't play in a, uh, a great winning side. In fact, I remember I, over those 48 test matches, I played five wins, we get this, and three of them were with the great Sir Richard Hadley. So I only had two wins when he'd finished, and I played uh, 13, I think, 12, 13 test matches with Richard, and then the rest of them out of that. So it just shows you uh, the percentage, and look, it was a different landscape. We didn't, mm. test matches weren't decided a lot more draws. Yeah. But in terms of that, and listening to you, as you just mentioned, the story about Agassi, um, the hurt of losing more and learning more from it. Mm. Um, I think that we felt that a lot because for what drove me on a bit was was trying to get more of a win. Mm. Um, and that again, without sounding very cliched, uh, that that whole winning habit thing, you know, there's a culture about winning. Um, I think for me dealing with it, um, it wasn't a problem in a way because I was living, if you like, I was living my dream for a start. I was fighting against um, the establishment in terms of what should have been an architectural looking fast bowler. But the physical thing I was doing asked me a lot in terms of training. So I did a lot of cross training. I went a bit more unique because of the back problem I had. I'd wear a full steamer wetsuit. I'd have cut down flippers and I'd get in the ocean in the winter in Auckland. It's pretty wild out there. But it was fun as well, and it added to. I'd do a bit of cycling on the roads, or a bit of cycling in the gym, uh, running the roads, running a mixture of road and obviously what you played on the turf. So you got used to both. Um, and then in the gym, um, you know, all the kinesiology stuff that was really being quite strong at that time in the mid '80s. You know, leaping off boxes and then sprinting and doing short, sharp, explosive stuff that related to what your yeah. skill was. Yeah. So I was very much cross and, and then swimming in a pool. So very different. And I, I wanted to make that interesting with variety. And so in terms of coming back to getting over things, um, like a lot of us, whether it was like a punishment, um, you got out and you, you would train. But it also, as we all know, in terms of releasing endorphins, uh, without getting too scientific, we're trying to think that I'm too scientific, <laughs> is that you were, you were, for one of a layman's term, it was great for your headspace because you were either down and frustrated and peed off. Mm. You went for a run or you trained. And for like Kim and I, um, training in the morning is a godsend. Mm. Wanting to get up early and do it. For a lot of people that don't like getting out of bed early, for me, after a loss, it was great. You could get up and you could go and run in the morning and release. Get back to routines. And, oh, just yeah. clear your head. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned Kim, and I'd just like to shift gears here, but um, nowadays you travel the world commentating cricket and... Um, it sounds glamorous and people go, wow, Danny Morrison traveling the world. But at the same time, you also face a massive challenge with the family dynamic that you don't enjoy as much as probably we would say that you'd like. But I'd love to know, how does it go for you? You've got two beautiful kids, Taylor and Jacob, and obviously Kim. 
I'm curious, how do you work this out? How do you create happy families? How do you create magic moments when you, you find that tricky balance of doing what you love, traveling the world and having a family as well? Um, look, I'll be really honest. It's not ideal. Of course it's not ideal. Um, but at the same time, um, for, for me personally in this skin bag, um, I've lived out of a suitcase probably since 1984 when I was 18. And so instead of going to tertiary education, um, apprenticeship, whatever you want to call it, um, my skill set was to go to England straight from high school and learn and play in those conditions and develop what my goal was to try and play international cricket. So in a way that works, so that was part of the process. Yeah. So living out of a suitcase I'm quite used to. Um, but look, I mean, no illusions, it's not easy. Um, and look, which we could do a whole other podcast. And like, I think we should. <laughs> yeah, time for this. Depression and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I've been down some really bad roads. Uh, you know, I abused alcohol, um, you know, in terms of blaming other things in my life, uh, making excuses. Um, yeah, look, I had a sister that committed suicide, so that didn't help. So then I was on the, I got off the road for a bit for a while. But that was in part two. I look at it as a positive catalyst, I have to, that we moved to Australia to get some sunshine back in, uh, particularly in my life, and another friend, another guy who came over as well with his family, um, to then realise that um, you've cut off all these other networks, so then you've got to make ends meet. Mm. So as much as I was doing that in New Zealand, I wanted to do that there. So what, in a nutshell, getting out and about to earn a living, um, very grateful in terms of doing what I do, um, but look, there was, yeah, there's certainly a cost that you miss out on family life and the kids are growing. But look, they've been to India with me a couple of times. They've been to an Indian wedding. Friends through Dennis Lilly um, in late 08 came to a wedding there. Um, they've been to Dubai once a year in the last three years. That's worked in really well with school holidays. Um, so they get to experience and get educated on the road. And so everyone knows that like, travel is quite a good education. Yeah, absolutely. And so that there, and, and then they learn to respect and understand that look how the majority of the planet live yeah. and struggle from day to day. And so being in India and seeing people suffering and living on the side of the roads, all that sort of thing, and then living in, and staying in nice hotels, and let's be real, we stay in five-star hotels, but also going out to see other people I've got to meet in Mumbai and in India mm. um, to see that it's suffering and it's, and it's not easy. But um, to answer that, um, I'm doing something I love. Look, there's, there's and that's reassuring for the family as well, yeah. isn't it? It's not like Dad's off doing something he doesn't even really like to do. No. It's you're still doing what you love and then you're still creating the quality time, mm. which really I think is more important than quantity time. Quality time is the most important thing. Yeah. And it feels like you're able to um, gel them both together. Yeah, I look, you know, as much as other people say, oh, look, you know, you're missing out on so much of that, you know. But then you know, I think of Dad's, you know, they probably get a dawn too and they get in the car and they have to travel two yeah. hours one way and two hours back. So by the time they get home, you know, depending how old the children are at that stage of their lives, you know, they've gone into their homework, the schooling, whatever, at the end of the day, and then dad gets home and maybe tucks them to bed and says hi, good night. Yeah, <laughs> You know, really. Yeah, the average really Australian dad sees their uh, child for two minutes a week, Monday to Friday. Mm. Wow. That's the average. Right, because they're out there going to gatherers and they're doing their thing. So, same for me. I mean, and yet you're right, we have that quality time. The kids, my kids are teenagers, adolescents, um, they get to experience that there. Um, they come across and see a different culture and they have to fit in. Yeah, great. Listen, I'd love to do another podcast with you. Yeah. <laughs> to do that. It's, uh, 
but honestly, like this has been awesome. I could just talk for hours. Yeah. So, but let's let's end this one in particular, and then we'll try to convince uh, Danny to uh, maybe do another one right now. But we'll see how we go. Make sure you go to Facebook page, uh, Facebook.com/slash/InsideChampionsMind. Make sure you like us there. Uh, go to uh, TheWellnessCouch.com and uh, you know listen to us and also all the other podcasts that are available. Eleven. And uh, yeah, we've got more and more podcasts. It's great. This is the Wellness Breakthrough uh, we're attending right now, and hopefully you'll be able to join us next year. Um, and uh, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a comment below this particular episode, and let us know what. What you think? Um, this has been Inside Champions Bunch, a show dedicated to helping you overcome mediocrity in the pursuit of being world class in anything that you do. I'm Lawrence Tam. He's Marcus Pierce. See you on the next episode. Thanks, Danny. Yes. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.